Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we are going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. By 1977, most of the orphanages in the U.S. had permanently shut their doors. The foster care system had steadily grown in popularity since World War II and had put most orphanages out of business. The Brickyard Home for Orphaned Children stood as a dreary reminder of a time quickly becoming the past. The industrial gray building loomed over passers-by like a tombstone for the living damned. No one could walk past Brickyard without imagining the downcast little faces behind its stoic facade. With state and federal assistance drying up, Brickyard's staff had been reduced to the headmistress and two nurses, one in the day and one at night. Most of Brickyard's children, as the community knew them, were teenagers. Adopting families snapped up the younger children so they could grow and mold them after their own fashion. Only one infant currently lived within Brickyard's dark walls, a baby boy named Lewis. Nurse Tess, the recently hired daytime nurse, had discovered him on the doorstep her very first day. She had asked the night nurse, Hammond, if people often left babies on the doorstep as the two prepared to swap roles for the day. It hasn't happened while I've worked here, Nurse Hammond had replied. Even destitute mothers seem to have forgotten places like Brickyard still exist. Headmistress Skinner was delighted to have a baby at Brickyard again. She knew he likely wouldn't last long, though. Still, she hoped she could get some young families in the door and maybe, just maybe, show them the value of adopting an older child as well. Wishful thinking, she knew, but she had to scrounge up hope from any cobwebbed corner she could find it in. Nurse Tess showed a special interest in little Lewis. Skinner reasoned that finding a baby out in the cold would certainly give someone, particularly a nurse, a powerful, mothering connection to the child. To the other children, it seemed the fresh nurse had fallen under a spell. Skinner began to worry that Tess would have trouble letting the child go when the time came. She too had grown attached to a child once. Hers was a little girl, about two years old. When a family inevitably adopted the beautiful child, it broke Skinner's heart. She didn't think she had ever fully recovered. She didn't want the same insatiable longing to befall the young nurse Tess. One afternoon, Skinner called Tess to her office to have the difficult conversation. I've noticed how attached you are to Lewis, she opened directly. He's such a sweet little boy, Tess replied. The stars in her eyes shone brightly with light that was not their own. She seemed wholly ignorant to the negative connotation Skinner had placed upon her statement. He is, Skinner conceded. But Tess, you do know how this ends, don't you? How it always ends? Tess looked confused, and Skinner said, Adoption, dear. Of course, Tess replied. Her voice whistled with naive joy, a tone that belied the trickery she was playing on her own mind. Skinner stood up. She was a tall woman with imposing posture, and she knew how to use her physical stature to her advantage. Tess, conversely, shrunk in her chair. Lewis will be adopted, and by all accounts, you will never see him again, Skinner said with dry finality. 
Best prepare yourself for that day. Best not get attached at all, Nurse Tess. Tess bowed her head. Skinner saw it bob subtly as Tess nodded. Then she put a hand on Tess's shoulder to induce just the appropriate amount of comfort before delivering the real news. I received a call earlier this afternoon from a newlywed couple. The wife contracted and beat ovarian cancer before they even met, but they both dearly want children. They're coming to meet our Lewis tomorrow. Tess's chin lifted and her lips parted as if to protest, but nothing came out. Instead, she bowed her head and nodded once more. She practically whispered, I'll have him ready. Have yourself ready, too. It won't be easy, I know. With that parting advice, Skinner dismissed her. The young couple did visit Lewis, and they fell in love with him. He seemed to adore them, too. He cried not once during their visit, which lasted over an hour. Tess was present in body, but absent in spirit. She seemed to have detached herself from reality. Skinner didn't mind. She saw the wisdom in Tess's self-imposed distance. The couple filed some preliminary forms and scheduled an appointment to come back and complete the process, but they never returned. I'm glad he's only a baby, Skinner said after the couple's scheduled time had come and gone. Oblivious. If this had happened to an older child, I can't imagine the heartbreak it would have caused. Nurse Tess held Lewis in her arms, swaying back and forth in a big wooden rocking chair. She said, It's a shame, truly, but I'm glad to have a little longer with this sweet little nugget. Skinner smiled, but the expression quickly cooled. The false alarm wouldn't affect the oblivious baby, but it had likely done Tess no favors. Another week arrived and brought another favorable visit with it. This one had been a couple who heard a radio interview with an adopted child who had been given a wonderful life. Inspired, they had dropped into Brickyard without so much as calling ahead. Unfortunately, they hadn't been inspired enough to take in a grown child, but Lewis caught and held their attention. Tess overtly disliked this couple. Ordinarily, Skinner might have pulled her aside and chastised her for her attitude, but she couldn't help but admit similar misgivings. If Lewis were a dog and this couple adopted him, he would have certainly landed back in the pound the first time he did a number on the carpet. Sadly, since they wouldn't be able to return him, the resentment of their own rash decision would most likely manifest in Lewis's neglect or even abuse. Tess took Lewis from the arms of his potential mother in the middle of their visit. Skinner gave her a questioning look, to which Tess responded, It's time for him to eat. She took Lewis out of the room, and Skinner invited the couple into her office to talk details. Tess brought Lewis back into the room ten minutes later and handed him directly to the woman. She seemed surprised and suddenly unsure about taking the child as his warm, milky breath filled her constricted nostrils. Tess grinned mischievously at Skinner, who pretended not to notice. Now, where were we? Skinner asked, shuffling papers on her desk. Oh, right, we... She was cut short by a splashing sound and a shrill scream. The young woman had leapt up from her seat and now held Lewis straight out in front of her as she looked down at her blouse, now soaked and stained with creamy vomit. Oh, no, did I forget to burp him? Tess asked disingenuously. She stepped forward to reclaim the child. She rubbed his back and cooed while Skinner uselessly handed the couple a box of tissues from her desk. We will, um, the husband stammered. We'll go home and get cleaned up. We can finish this another time, I think. That couple was also never seen again by the Brickyard staff. 
Well, Lewis, aren't you just a little troublemaker? Skinner asked, but her piercing gaze was set on Nurse Tess. Tess rolled her eyes. You know they would have had the same reaction the first time she overfed him, only they wouldn't be able to just walk away then. Skinner couldn't help but chuckle. All right, all right, but no games next time. You don't want this little boy growing up in a place like this, do you? If it means he's with people who love him, that's okay with me, Tess replied. This response horrified Skinner more than the nasty trick Tess had played. Nurse Tess, she snapped. Tess's gaze immediately switched from the baby to her boss, from loving to terrified. I do not ever want to hear you say you love another child in this home, understand? We care for them. We take care of them. But we do not, hear me now, not love them. Tess stared at Skinner with wide, unbelieving eyes, and Skinner knew her harsh words had hit deaf ears. It's for our own good that we grow calluses against love, she explained. When a child you love is taken away from this place, they take a piece of you with them. Let me ask you, Tess, how many pieces can you afford to give away? How much of yourself can you lose? Tess wordlessly accepted the lecture and took Lewis out of the headmistress's office. After Tess closed the door, Skinner collapsed into her chair and cried. Lewis did not have to wait long for another pair of eager visitors. This couple already had a happy, healthy son of their own. Complications during her first pregnancy had left the mother unwilling to risk another, but the couple desperately wanted to give him a little brother. Skinner liked these parents very much and did everything she could to keep Tess away from them. When the time came for them to fill out their application, Skinner sent Tess out of Brickyard entirely on an errand. I'll file this, and if everything checks out, you should hear from me by the end of the week, Skinner told the couple as she stood. Tess returned just in time to hear this. The couple hadn't seen her step into Skinner's doorway, and she slipped away noticed only by the headmistress. The couple's background did check out, and Skinner called them that Friday to deliver the good news. Her call wouldn't go through, though. She double-checked the number and dialed again, only to be told the number was no longer in service. She looked at the address they had supplied and saw it wasn't far away. Despite the irregularity of going to them in person, Skinner didn't want to let this family slip away because of a bad phone number. She made the three-minute drive to the couple's address, but instead of a house, she found a charred hole wrapped in yellow police tape. That explains why their number is disconnected, Skinner thought. She stopped the car and got out. There were two men standing behind the tape looking at the house, and she hoped maybe one of them could tell her where the home's residence had gone. She had a feeling they might not be as keen to take in an infant now with their house destroyed, but she had to try. Excuse me, she called across the tape. Both men turned to her. She saw they each wore badges, one on his belt and the other around his neck. They approached her slowly. Could you tell me where the couple who lived here went? Uh, and who are you? The taller man, the one with the badge on his belt, asked. My name is Eliza Skinner. I'm headmistress at the Brickyard Home for Orphaned Children. The couple who lived here was set to adopt... The taller man raised his hand to cut her off and shook his head solemnly. Skinner's heart sank. Ma'am, I'm Detective Kent, and this is Fire Marshal Reynolds. He gestured to the man with the badge around his neck. Now Skinner saw the badges were slightly different. I'm sorry to tell you, but the folks who lived here were all asleep when... They're both dead? Skinner asked. All three, the Fire Marshal replied. 
Shimmering tears lined the bottoms of Skinner's eyes, but didn't fall yet. She had forgotten the couple already had a child of their own. How did it happen? She asked the investigators. That's what we're here trying to figure out, the marshal replied. Detective Kent stepped forward and said, We still can't determine the source of the fire. Doesn't seem to have been electrical, that much we know. My mind is trending towards arson. You said the residents here visited you? Well, only the parents, but yes, Skinner replied. Looking to adopt, I assume? asked the detective. Skinner explained that the couple had been meant to come back to finalize the adoption of a baby boy. Sounds like they were good people, the fire marshal said. Such a shame to lose folks like that. Their little boy, too. I'd rather have you make up another bed than the undertaker dig another grave. A weighty silence fell over the trio before headmistress Skinner excused herself to let the men continue their investigation. There was nothing more for her to see or learn from the hollow, blackened house. She returned to Brickyard, heavy-hearted. In the common area, Tess sat rocking Lewis to sleep while two of the older girls read to themselves nearby. The peaceful scene brought Skinner's troubled mind some comfort. She looked at that baby boy in Tess's arms and imagined how horrible they all would have felt if he had been adopted one day sooner and had been burned alive with his brand new family. She thought especially of Tess. For such a tragedy to have struck the child she had fallen so deeply in love with would have destroyed the young woman. Lord knows what would have become of her. Skinner was packing up her things to go home for the night when she heard squabbling somewhere else in the building. It was normal to hear such sounds and irritated tones from the children, but these voices both belonged to adults. Curious, she snuck down the hall. The voices gained body as she approached the common area. She recognized one as Tess's, but the other was only vaguely familiar. It said, I assure you I'm not here to bother anyone. I just have a few questions for your headmistress, ma'am. She and I spoke earlier. Detective Kent? Skinner wondered. She rounded the corner to find the police detective standing across from Tess, who had positioned herself to block him from getting to Skinner's office. Nurse Tess, let that man through, Skinner demanded, appalled. Tess whipped around, clearly having not heard Skinner's approach. She looked embarrassed as she stepped aside. Detective, Skinner greeted him. I wish I could say it was good to see you again, but I imagine you're here on business. The detective grunted affirmatively. I'd love to take a kid or two off your hands, but I'm afraid my three are already almost too much for me. I'm here about that thing we spoke about earlier, at the house. You remember, I'm sure. From his tone and odd wording, Skinner gleaned Detective Kent wanted to keep the reason for his visit between them. None of the children were around to hear anymore, which meant he wanted to keep the reason from... Of course, she replied. We can speak privately in my office. Tess? Nurse Hammond will be here shortly to relieve you. Will you manage on your own until then? Tess looked like she wanted to protest, but nodded curtly instead, then exited the room. I want to apologize for Nurse Tess, Skinner said, walking Detective Kent to her office. It's been a long day here, even without the bad news about Lewis's adoptive parents. Lewis? Detective Kent asked. Oh, I'm sorry. Lewis is the baby boy who would have been adopted by... Ah, I see. And Nurse... Tess, was it? I assume you told her about the fire. Well, no, actually. I didn't want her thinking about what would have happened if little Lewis had gone home with them sooner. I told her they wouldn't be able to carry out the adoption, but that's all. Did she seem surprised about that? Kent asked. 
Skinner showed him to one of the chairs across from her desk before getting settled into her own. I'm sorry, detective. Why the interest in Nurse Tess? Has she done something wrong? Kent shifted uncomfortably in front of her. He reminded her of one of the children trying to burr the fib. He was either about to lie to her or tell her an uncomfortable truth. Ma'am, I assure you, if I had any evidence your nurse had committed a crime, she would be under arrest. Clearly, that is not the case. Skinner raised an eyebrow, encouraging him to stop flirting with fiction. There is a connection, a feeble connection, but still an odd coincidence, between last night's fire and another we've been investigating, another probable arson. Go on, Skinner said. You told me the Foresters, the family from last night's fire, visited here, yes? They were set to adopt a little boy? Yes, Lewis, Skinner replied. Uh Uh-huh. Well, we talked with some neighbors of another house fire last week. It seems the young couple who were killed in that one also wanted to adopt. One neighbor thought they were actually pretty far along in the process of adopting a baby boy. I have to assume that would have also been from here. What was their name? Skinner asked. She began to sweat around her hairline. Packet, the detective said. Will and Olivia Packet. Skinner felt sick. The room seemed to spin like an amusement park ride. Will and Olivia Packet had been the first young couple to visit Lewis, the couple who had not returned to finalize the adoption. The odds of both them and the Foresters dying in tragic house fires were impossibly slim. It became clear to her why the detective had felt a visit to Brickyard was necessary. He didn't even know both families had intended to adopt the exact same child. Detective Kent saw Skinner's jaw tighten, saw the tension in her shoulders. He watched her eyes involuntarily drift upwards, seeming to look through the ceiling at something or someone above them. Ms. Skinner, he said calmly, does the name Packet mean something to you? Wide-eyed Skinner nodded and Kent knew. He had already known, mostly. The headmistress seemed genuinely ignorant until this moment, so it had to be one of the nurses. He had his suspicions about precisely which one, but he wasn't quite ready to point the finger yet. Ms. Skinner, this is going to be difficult, I'm sure, but I need to ask about your staff. It's Tess. The accusation hissed out like steam from a covered pot. The pressure had forced it out of her lips. It had to be the fresh young nurse, Skinner thought. She had become even more attached to Lewis than Skinner had realized. She wouldn't let the boy be adopted. She had even prevented it once before Skinner's very eyes. The young couple she made him throw up on were the lucky ones. Just how lucky, they would never fully know. Tess, Kent repeated the name, testing it out like a puzzle piece. She's the nurse who confronted me just a minute ago? Yes, that's her. And why do you think it's... The squealing of heavy hinges interrupted the detective, and he instinctively stood to face the door opening behind him. Skinner noted how close his fingers hovered near his gun, but no threat appeared in the doorway, just a twelve-year-old girl with her dingy blonde hair and a long ponytail, who appeared to be on the verge of tears. Kent relaxed and stepped to the side to remove himself from whatever domestic situation Skinner needed to handle. "'Sarah, I'm in a meeting,' Skinner said, stern but with a soft edge. I'm sorry, headmistress, but I thought I should come right away. Nurse Tess... Kent stepped forward again. She sent us all to our rooms and took Lewis. Took him where? Skinner asked. Kent looked like a sprinter on the starting block. She told us not to tell, but she scared me, Miss Skinner. 
I peeked under my door and watched her take him up those old stairs near Bobby and Michael's room. Kent looked to Skinner to see if the girl's words meant anything to her and saw they most definitely had. Skinner had gone white as a ghost. Where do those stairs lead? He asked. His posture indicated his intent to take over the situation. His suspect was on the run, apparently with an infant in her arms. The attic, Skinner said faintly. Then, Sarah, stay down in the common area. I'll send the others down too. Is Nurse Tess in trouble, mister? Sarah asked the detective. He nodded grimly. Tears now welled in Sarah's eyes and, ashamed, she ran out of the room. Kent and Skinner were close behind her. Skinner led the detective upstairs and pointed out the narrow old staircase Sarah claimed Tess had ascended. Skinner went to each room and sent the children down to the common area. Then she joined Kent at the base of the attic stairs. Do you think she could be dangerous? Kent asked her. He was eyeing the staircase and pondering strategies. There was only enough room for one person to go up at a time. He was debating whether it would be best for this rogue nurse to see her boss or a badge first. I don't think she'll harm the child, if that's what you're asking. What about you? I... Skinner paused, but then said, I don't think so. Well, I'll be right behind you either way. Why don't you pop up there and see if you can coax her down? If you can get the baby away from her, I'll put her in cuffs right away. Skinner stepped past him and set a foot on the first creaking stair. She called Tess's name, but got no response. The attic had been used to store records since the late 19th century. It was full of wide filing drawers that created dozens of small hiding places. Skinner started walking between them, nervously checking around every corner for Tess or Lewis. Ma'am, Kent called from the top of the stairs. Skinner didn't hear him over her own blood pounding in her ears. He called again. Ma'am. This time she turned to him. He was pointing to something past her. She followed his finger to a ladder hanging down from the ceiling in the far corner of the attic. She had never noticed it before. There was a trap door at the top with an open padlock dangling from it. Is your roof access usually left unlocked like that? Kent asked. Skinner didn't respond, but her body language answered for her. Kent pushed past her, ignoring the possible threat that could be lurking behind one of the dozen or so file cabinets. He knew where the nurse had gone, and if he was right, the time to save her and the baby was ticking away. It may have already been too late. He scrambled up the ladder. On the last rung, he unlatched the strip of leather keeping his gun pinned in place. Then, he pushed open the trap door. It slammed back down on top of him, breaking two of his fingers. Kent cried out in surprise and pain and almost fell off the ladder. He gaped at his index and middle fingers, which now pointed to the left and right, respectively. Through the heavy door above his head, he could hear a baby crying. Go back downstairs and call me some backup, he told Skinner. My badge number is 683. Got it? 683. Tell them I've got a barricaded suspect on the roof. Skinner rushed down the stairs like a specter. While she was gone, Kent tried reasoning with Tess through the door, but she wouldn't acknowledge him. He knew she was there, though. He could hear her comforting coos in between the child's hysterical cries. Skinner returned, sweating, about three minutes later. They're coming, she said. She pointed at the trap door and said, Let me try. With one hand, the detective climbed down and allowed the headmistress to take his place. He warned her not to say anything that could endanger the child, but Skinner assured him once more that Tess would never harm Lewis. She intended to use that knowledge against the nurse. Tess, can you hear me? She yelled up through the door. She did not receive an answer either. I know you're only trying to protect Lewis. I know how much he means to you. This prompted Tess's first response. 
Her voice was wet as she sobbed. No, you couldn't begin to understand how much he means to me. Oh, Tess, this is what I was trying to warn you about. You can't get too attached. These children need parents. Lewis loves you, but he needs a real mother. He has a real mother, Tess screamed. Detective Kent twitched nervously. He didn't like the touch of insanity he heard in the nurse's voice. If she lost her grip on reality, even for just a moment. Skinner opened her mouth to reply, but a different thought interrupted her. More of a suspicion, rather. It had crossed her mind once or twice before, but she had dismissed it as lunacy. But lunacy had become the norm that day, and her suspicion now seemed as reasonable as any. Tess, she began tenderly. Are you Lewis's mother? Tess replied only with a loud sniffle. I think I understand now, Skinner continued. You couldn't take care of him on your own. You didn't find him on the step. You brought him with you on your first day. He's why you took the job here. I didn't realize how many people would want him, Tess sobbed. I thought I would have more time. I thought maybe he could grow up here and I could watch him become a man. I thought maybe someday I would get back on my feet and bring him home so we could be a proper little family. Her voice turned upward at the end. Skinner started to cry. Detective Kent stood, open-mouthed, watching from below. In the distance, sirens had begun to whine. They masked the sounds of Lewis's cries. They'll be here in less than a minute, Kent warned Skinner. Tess, can you still hear me? Skinner asked. Are those sirens for me? Tess asked back. Yes, and when they get here, they're going to force you down from there. They'll take Lewis away from you, and I'm not sure you'll ever get to see him again. Ma'am, Kent warned. He didn't want her to push the nurse over the edge. Figuratively or literally. Please, Tess, give him to me and come down. I'll make sure you get to see him again. You can't, Tess said, almost too quietly to be heard. You can't promise me that. Skinner found herself at a loss for words. She wasn't sure what else she could offer the desperate mother above her. They're going to take me away, Tess continued on her own. They're going to lock me up and make sure I never see my little boy again. He'll grow up knowing his mama is a murderer. He'll know she's locked up in prison like some dirty criminal. He'll never want to see me again. He'll never want to know me. Unless... Tess? Skinner called as Tess trailed off. Kent said, Ma'am, I don't like the sound of her voice. I think I should get back up there. There was a rustling sound above, then footsteps at a high tempo. Lewis's crying grew louder for a moment, then grew distant. Kent didn't wait for Skinner to come down. He climbed up the back of the ladder and swung in front of the headmistress as he shoved the trapdoor open with his injured hand. With excruciating pain and frustrating slowness, he hoisted himself onto the roof and rolled to his feet. The rooftop was empty, save for a small water tank near the far corner. Sirens blared below them, amplified by their own reflections off the buildings nearby. Skinner climbed out of the trapdoor and stood beside the dumbstruck detective. Where is she? she asked. Then, when the detective didn't respond, she demanded again, Where is she? But she knew. She didn't know how she had been so wrong. She had never imagined Tess would hurt Lewis. It seemed so impossible. Especially now, knowing she was his biological mother, how could she have done it? How could she have carried her little boy over the edge? The sirens went quiet, one by one, and the sound they had been masking finally reached Skinner and Ken's ears. Over here, Kent yelled. He crossed the roof in a quick sprint. 
Skinner's heart raced as she caught up with him, then passed him. She ran around the water tank and found him. Baby Lewis lay face up and screaming on the roof behind the tank. Skinner collapsed next to him and took him up in her arms. She held him to her chest, feeling the vibrations of his screams through the fabric of her blouse, thankful he would not remember this day for long. Detective Kent looked over the edge where Nurse Tess had taken her final step. He saw her blue dress down in the street, although now, from this height, it looked black. It lay like the dark pupil of an enormous red eye. A few of his colleagues were standing around the nurse's splattered remains. Two of them were looking up. He gave them a gesture to show everything was okay up top, then turned back to Skinner and Lewis. He was about to say something, but held it back. There was nothing he could say to help, to fix the horrible trauma. Instead, he looked on as Lewis grew steadily calmer and fell asleep in the headmistress's arms. One of her tears fell on his tender face. That tear belonged to him, as did all the others which fell from her eyes that day. They all belonged to the little boy who had been orphaned not once, but twice, by the same desperate mother. But that mother's desperation paid off in the end. Although she would never touch him again, Nurse Tess watched her son, the boy the TV news branded the cursed child, become a man from within the walls of Brickyard. He would never see her again, but he always knew she was there with him. And when he finally did grow up and leave, he left her there where she remained until, and after, the doors to the Brickyard home for orphaned children were closed for good. Some say you can still see her, watching from the windows, looking for her son, searching for her little man, the boy she gave everything for. You made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. If you want more creepy content, including the images that accompany each story, follow me on Instagram at thewarningwoods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the warning woods. Thank you for listening.